So I always like to start with with the journey to get to uh, the place you are now. And I know yours is an interesting one. So I wanted to maybe start from maybe we could start really early. Let's let's start from when you were growing up and and uh, give us an idea of, of, of what that was and uh, how you sort of got introduced to refugee camps, right? And then how that led to starting your company. Yeah, so I grew up in, um, in Toronto, in Canada. And, you know, I'm originally from from Palestine. My parents were born in Gaza. They grew up in Egypt. I was born in Dubai, uh, moved to Canada when I was very young. So, you know, I'm as a Palestinian Canadian, I always kind of knew that I, I had this, this rooted identity back home, right? So it wasn't until I got to university, and I actually was doing my master's program. And I was doing my research on identity politics. Hmm. Um, and so I was always, I guess it was kind of like a, a self-search type of, because <laughs> we're all, always sure. like, right? Like it's kind of like digging a little deeper. And I had decided to do my primary research um, at the Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan. And so uh, although I was Palestinian and my parents were born in Gaza, I personally never lived a refugee life. Like I was sure. never in a refugee camp. Um, yes, I never had a passport, like a Palestinian passport, because, you know, that was just our state when we were born. We, we you know, we had the stateless um, identity. And so right. coming to Canada was so important because it granted us this, this new life, this new opportunity to have a citizenship, which was, you know, huge for us. But the sense of, you know, living, understanding what it means to be a refugee, understanding what it means living in a refugee camp and going through that struggle and then identifying with that. And so my research was kind of stemmed around intergenerational differences of identity amongst uh, Palestinian refugees in Jordan. And so I, I traveled to Jordan. I, I lived with a couple of host families in Jordan um, in the refugee camps. And it was there and then that kind of started, I guess, the path of working closely with the community and then starting both my NGO and then later on through um, a few years later, uh, City Soap. So the so, NGO, the NGO came first then, correct? Yes. So after I had finished my math master's thesis, I ended up relocating back to uh, Jordan once I graduated. And I had started an NGO called Hopes for Women in Education. And it was primarily focused on providing higher um, scholarships, uh, higher educational scholarships for refugee women, because I found a lot of women in the refugee camps were marginalized to be able to continue their higher education, mainly due to socioeconomic disadvantages. So they, they couldn't take out a loan. Mm -hmm. um, if their family had to put them into university or college, they literally had to save, you know, for months to be able to just afford it. And then sometimes I would meet girls that, you know, would do one semester and then get out and then wait a year to save money and then go back and do another semester. And it was like, I, met, I think I met a girl that took her 10 years to finish her BA because she kept going on and off not being able to afford it full time. And so I found it kind of coming from a place of privilege and coming from, you know, a place where, you know, continuing your education was never a question, like both in Canada and the States, it was, it's very easy to access loans. It's very easy to right. access educational scholarships. So for me, I felt it was so unfair. I was like, why, you know, you shouldn't have 
to not go and not continue your education just because of money. Like that should not be a barrier of entry. And so that was the whole essence of hopes for women. It was it was the sense of let's create a fund for women um, that would rec- both recognize women that really wanted to push further in their in their lives and their communities by getting this education, um, by helping supporting them. And so that's that's how it started. And then the so that first trip you took to to the refugee camp was that. Was it right after that you decided to start the NGO and then the NGO led you to start the company? Yeah. So when I was doing my research, I actually bumped in. I had done a lot of um, a lot of interviewing with a lot of families and I met a lot of women and both in high school and you know, continuing, uh, you know, higher education. And I kind of identified it as a constant struggle. And so when I came back, I felt like this can't be it. There has to be more to this you know, it's not just, and I I also had an incident when I was at the camp and I had visited a family who just lost this Mm. two girls who just lost their father. And so I went with a social worker to visit the family. And I remember the girls being really, really mean to me. And I, and I don't blame them. They just lost their father. They're in a very uh, difficult, you know, position and place. And so I was at no way expecting anybody to be, you know, nice. But, and I say that only because everyone was so hospitable the entire time I was there. So it was kind of odd to see these girls being really rude and mean and kind of giving me like this cold shoulder. And so I remember the girl at the, like, while we were asking her some questions and making sure the family's okay, if they needed anything, she kind of was like, you know, you're just here to ask a bunch of questions and then you're going to go back to your life and we're going to be here just as we are. And it kind of hit me, her words really kind of struck me that like, yeah, you're right. Like I am here to ask a couple of questions and I am going to go back home and I might not, I might, you know, never see you guys again. And so I kind of felt like a hypocrite. I kind of felt like, am I using them? It it kind of was a self-reflection of like, am I doing the best that I can for this community? Or am I just trying to extract information and leave? And so it was at that moment that I think lingered with me way after I went back, you know, came back to Toronto. Um, And I felt like, you know, there has to be something more here. And because education was such an important aspect of my life and and because it was never, it was, there was never a barrier um, to entry with, you know, my, my personal education, I felt like women should not be um, subjected to that just because of where they grew up and where they're from. And so that's how the idea of hopes came that when I ended up relocating to, to Jordan, um, I felt like this has to be something, you know, that, that I started. And, and then that, that sort of naturally, you gained a bunch of experience from that. I'm sure you, you learned a lot. And then you discovered different issues, probably different problems that the women in these camps faced. And then I guess you put your entrepreneurial hat on and say, education is, is one thing, right? But there still needs to be jobs eventually somewhere. 100%. And so one of the things we noticed too, and, and it was so important for us, um, even with Hopes for Women, is that it wasn't... So once we were able to get a bunch of women um, into university, and to date, we've had about you know 50 scholars that have graduated and we're so proud of that. And we're still kind of continuing slowly with our scholarship program year, year after year. Um, And is that schools in uh, Jordan or in, in, in the region? So it's in Jordan. um, And the reason we've kind of limited it to that, I mean, we've kind of primarily worked um, out of Jordan, but we've primarily limited to scholarship funding 
locally because we know and we understand that a lot of families a lot of these women come from very conservative families so we don't want to also come in and be like disrupt the entire family yeah we're gonna come and take your daughters out right Um, we want it to be like you know you're accepted to a local university we'll fund your tuition your um your education uh your tuition your transportation and your academic fees that you need to complete and to successfully you know be able to graduate in the four or three three year time frame but you mentioned, you know, did I put my entrepreneurial hat on? That actually wasn't the case. So we were uh, working in the camps for, you know, several years, about four, four years or so. Mm -hmm. And because of our very heavy involvement in the camp, and, you know, we were constantly doing projects on the ground and um, working closely with the community there. One of the local volunteers that we worked with came, I remember visited me, and she had cut, she had brought with her a box of soap. Mm. And she was like, you know, we just have, we have a bunch of women that are trained in olive oil soap making. We have huh. boxes and boxes of soap. Can you help us sell this? Huh. And I remember looking at her like, soap? Like, <laughs> where did this come from? Um, you know, I've never been in the business of soap. I wouldn't know where to start. But I knew that like there was something here more than just a bar of soap. It was literally these women that, you know, were resilient enough. They had no other option. They were trying to use their their skills, their, their something that they were taught to make something, to, you know, make a few bucks to be able to feed their families. At the yeah, end, I think, yeah, that that's a... That's a beautiful segue because CD Soap is such a it's such an amazing social enterprise because it sort of hits like every mark of like what a social enterprise is and, and perhaps should be. It, it has all the elements of of why consumers can can play a huge role in, in changing a person's life and, and also how the power of business can you know you could you can make a bar of soap in a refugee camp in in Jordan and sell it to a person in Wisconsin you know right that that's like a an amazing time we live in where we can help support people around the world by doing stuff we would normally do right we all buy soap eventually at some point <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming everybody uses soap at least once a day um, yeah no right? I, I was, right? so, so, right? so there's a there's a need for it right and so yeah so but, let's it, maybe can you maybe explain exactly maybe what the brand is, the mission and sort of the vision from when it started and maybe what it is now, if it's yeah. changed at all? So, I mean, after that first visit, I ended up uh, partnering with my uh, current co-founder, Jacqueline Sophia, Jacqueline, yeah. who, also, who was actually at the refugee camp working with the local community center as well, the women's center there. Um, and she had also been approached to help, you know, these women sell a bunch of soap. And so um, I'm a big believer of, you know, collaboration of, over competition. And, and at the time, we felt that me and Jackie were kind of trying to do the same thing. We were trying to help, gotcha. people, you know, push out their soap. And this is where we came together and decided, you know, let's kind of bring our efforts, bring our energy together to really put something at the forefront. And I always end up going back and checking my intention. And I think this is really important because a lot of people ask like, why do you do this? And I'm like, okay, let me take a step back. You know, it's not for, you know, the money that is coming out of it because let's be frank, when you start a startup, you're not in it for the money, you're in it for, right. you know, what the meaning behind it. And, um, you know, what, what we're really trying to achieve, which is giving these women their dignity through employment, and giving them financial stability by saying, you know, you can now get out of debt, you can now afford to, you know, put some food on the table. Um, and a lot of the women that work with us are sole breadwinners, right? Um, yeah, 
So just going back, I mean, you asked like how we started and where we are today. It's it's definitely been a process and we're now going into our fifth year and it's, it's definitely something where I'm learning something new every single day. It's not, it's, I don't have all the answers (laughs) Um, and I don't, and I think if any startup tells you that they do, I think they may be slightly lying. Like, yeah. um, Oh no, obviously. Yes. I think that is, that is, yeah, no. Anybody that ever tells you that is don't ever listen to that person. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, I always want to be in a room where I'm constantly learning something. If I'm not like something's wrong, I'm in the wrong room. But I think in the process of of starting, it's definitely been a chance for us to continue pushing ourselves and the community that we work with beyond what we thought was was what everybody was expecting. And and what I mean by that is when we first started, a lot of people had a lot of criticisms. Sure. So just imagine from the camp itself, from both from the camp. Mm -hmm. from the women that we worked with, from people in the local community in Jordan, from people that we would talk to, they'd be like, you know, it's a good concept, but you know, it's out of, it's out of a camp. And unfortunately, and as much as we want to say that, you know, it's all about inclusion and, you know, welcoming everybody, there was kind of this hypocritical, you know, tone with some people of like, oh, but it's made at a camp. Like, what do you really expect? And the number one thing we wanted to make sure with Sitsi is that- We wanted to make sure that people didn't pity, weren't making a pity purchase. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, "Mm, I feel bad for you. Let me buy a bar. I wanted people to buy it because it was really, truly the best olive oil soap you'll buy in the market. And I... I stand by my words, not just because, you know, I'm, you know, but because I truly believe um, that we, uh, we do produce one of the best olive oil soaps in the market, you know, hands down. And because we use premium quality, we use very traditional ways of producing the soap. It's made in small batches. We're very kind of strict in how, in our, in our, in our production process, Mm -hmm. but is all the production done in the camp? Yes. Yes. Okay. What does so, that look like? Is it is there like just an area dedicated to production or is it done like in their homes? Like, can you give us an idea of like what the actual yeah, process so looks we, like? We actually have a women's center that we okay. we started um, as soon as we decided that this is something we really want to push forward because we felt like is it was very important to have a dedicated space for these right. women to be able yep. to produce the soap to allow the soap to cure and to dry out and then to be able to be um, to work. We knew that women find it very difficult to do this out of their homes. Um, again, you want to you want to um, control quality, um, and you want to make sure that you know certain procedures were in line in the production process. Especially if we were thinking of pushing this internationally, you know, we want to be able to meet international standards um, where you know everything is made to the dot, everything is measured, everything is um, overseed. We had supervisors, everything. Um, so we couldn't leave this kind of at the liberty of these women making them at their homes, right? Yeah. Uh, so having that center there at the camp was was fundamental. Was that already there or was that something that you guys sort of put together? Because I look, it's hard to start a brand in general, right? Then it's hard to start a social enterprise in general. It's probably even more difficult to start a social enterprise in a refugee camp because I guess there's like, do you have to get permission from the government to do something like that? Right. There's there's probably some different obstacles you had to face versus just a random company out there. Right. Starting up. Yeah. So when we first started, you know, women were 
initially producing these out of their homes. You know, they were not yeah. using proper molds. They were using makeshift um, equipment from their homes. Um, it wasn't, you know, up to par to, you know, company standards or let's say, um, you know, official standards if you if I was going to send this to get tested or anything. Right, like that. right. Um, so as soon as we we made the decision, we actually ran, ran a crowdfunding campaign and we did a call out in the community in Jordan. Um, we ended up renting a place out of this, um, in, in the refugee camp itself. It was, and it was important for us to stay in the camp mm-hmm. because a lot of women would have mobility issues yeah, um, going sure. to and from um, to the center. Uh, we wanted to make sure that women had easy access to come into work for a few hours. If they, if she had children that she had to pick up after, you know, after school, she wouldn't have that like, you know, mobility issue of of going to and from uh, the center. And we wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to be a barrier for them to be able to come to work in general. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of women will, and I, and I've known women that would get jobs in the city and it would pay, let's say two, 300 JDs, which is Jordanian dinars mm-hmm. a month, mm-hmm. which is like the fair local wage there. Sure. But then they would be spending. You, you got to get there though. Yeah. Like they would literally be spending 80% of what they were making right. on transportation. So it, yeah. would, it would make sense for these women to, you know, spent all this time away, away from the family just to bring in, you know, 10% of their salary at the end, um, because all of it was going on transportation. And so this having some a place at the at the camp was really, really important for us to establish. So that's what we were able to do with our uh, first run of a crowdfunding campaign and a few uh, dedicated donors that we had reached out to, plus uh, some companies locally in Jordan that ended up helping us completely, you know, renovate our center to be what it is today. That's great. So you mentioned before that when you first started, there was a little bit of reluctancy and and doubt. Has that narrative changed a little bit now, five years in? Is it the community and the camp and the the women more accepting of what you've built? Yeah. So, I mean, to date, we have over uh, 50 women that have been trained um, in the soap making process. We have 10 full-time employees. And, and a lot of the women that are trained are also work with us on a part-time basis from time to time. Mm-hmm. And for us, changing that perspective really had a lot to do with the brand. Um, so the branding for us, um, you know, getting that right. And what I mean by the brand is just like the overall feel and look of, mm-hmm. you know, we really didn't want to cheapen out on packaging or, right. on, you know, little things like that. And I feel like people, I wanted to make sure that people didn't look at this and say, oh, this came from a camp. I wanted them to look at it and be, and find it as though they would find it at, you know, a raft, um, at a shelf at Nordstrom or, mm-hmm. you know, like a high end luxury boutique. And thankfully we, we've been able to get to those shelves. You know, we've been able to get at a luxury boutique here in, in, in Canada at Holt Renfro. Um, we're now at the on the shelves at, at uh, Whole Foods in, in Ontario, which is a huge, huge milestone yeah. for us because it really means that we've been able to surpass the idea that, you know, City is just a brand out of a camp. For us, yeah. we want to do so much more than that. Absolutely. No, I think you, you nailed it. And I always, when I talk to people, it, when people aren't, you know, introduced to, you know, sort of modern social impact brands, I think they do have a little bit of that, that charity aspect, right? Oh, I'm buying an inferior product, but I'll buy it just because, right? It's sort of that charity feel. And I think now that the sector of social enterprises in general has grown, most of these products are 
equally, probably mostly actually better than anything you can get on a shelf. Right. Yeah. And so for, for the consumer, it's, it's becoming more and more, more of an easy choice now because when your product is just as good as anything you can get on the shelf, plus the stuff on the back end, right? That mm-hmm. is, that is what I think can, right? It separates you obviously in the marketplace, but it also has this overwhelmingly powerful feeling of, of a person doing something good, but then they're mm-hmm. also getting a product that they want. Right. It's not some, like you said before, like a, like a pity purchase. Yeah. And so that's a great thing. I think the entire sector is, is, is feeling now is, is the products are so great. They're probably better. They, they, I would say like 90% they times they are better because they're made like this, right? They're small batch. They're made, they're crafted. They're not just made in a Chinese factory. Right at mass and, scale. And you can understand what the ingredients are. And I think this is also, you know, the shift happening with, you know, um, clean beauty and mm-hmm. you know yeah. ingredients that we can understand. So it's really important for us. I mean, now nowadays, like I'll buy something and I'll look at the label and I'm like, what is that? Like <laughs> I, need to, I I can't even pronounce it half the time. Um, and so I, I think it's important also that you know as as consumers and and there's that and a lot of people are talking about conscious consumerism. Like what does that really mean? Right. And it's you know it's asking the right questions from the companies. It's um it's being aware of you know what we're putting in our bodies you know what we're what we're using on a day-to-day basis and i think only when consumers are asking these questions will there become a shift from you know the conglomerates that are producing masses of pro- like a, a mass number of products to start changing their way of doing things too right 100% i mean the shift that's going to happen is that they're just going to buy you guys <laughs> yeah well that would be great i mean yeah, that would, i mean it's that would <laughs> bring a boost into into the refugee economy too right sure you just um, yeah you just always worry with that is that you know they take it for the brand name and stuff and then they dilute the brand though right because of of margins they want to get or, or whatever, right? So my hope is, is that when these acquisitions start to happen, they keep the same. Authenticity. You know, yeah. Of course. I mean, that's the only way it's going to work for for the buyer, right? And for you, the founder, to even accept something like that. But I th- but I, I hope that's where it's headed. And, I, and I, then I hope that, you know, if they keep the the authenticity of it. Because like you said, I mean, that, what's, that, that's, that would be so amazing for for refugee economy right that's a term yeah. that you don't hear and, and, every day but it exists yeah and and i know people are sometimes sick and tired of you know there's and, and it's it's hard right it's almost depressing like there's almost you know you're always giving to this charity and always giving to this community and mm-hmm. i'm a big you know i've, I've worked in the refugee community for o- almost 10 years now and what i see is that people are so tired of you know the charity like people like even the people yeah. from the camps they kind yeah. of want to be released from this you know this this feeling of i'm poor i'm hope i'm helpless you know i need your help and it's so refreshing to see these women that we work with on a day to day basis that really kind of have changed changed the trajectory of their life because they're able to work with their hands, because they're able to, you know, make money in a dignified way. And then they can take that and then go to their family and really support them. And we can definitely change the reliance on NGOs and the United Nations and, you know, inter, you know international yeah. um, uh, aid uh, organizations 
um, when we're when we're doing just that, changing the economies of these, you know, changing the the refugee economy, employing refugees, um, investing into these communities where you know they're able to use the skills to give something back. That's, um, and I'm not sure that the United Nations is a really tricky thing as far as like the structure and everything, but they are always sort of funding a lot of amazing things, right? Mm-hmm. But it's always I, I'm not sure why they don't fund brands like this, right? Like, why don't they have an investment fund where they're like, look, we're in some way they're giving a refugee camps, right? In some way or another, like, it, it seems like it would make sense for them to actually like invest in companies like this that are basically doing the work that they want to do anyway, right? But it's more sustainable. You know, that's the stuff that actually can employ an entire refugee camp rather than deploying funds just to kind of rinse and repeat the same process over and over, right? At every single camp. Well, and, and this is this is something also a lot of NGOs and international or- development organizations have come into these communities mm-hmm. and they'll offer workshops and they'll offer skill training and, you know, they'll offer different things here and there, or they'll offer microloans, you know, um, or microfunding. Um, but what happens sometimes is you have this, and, and, and just as an example, you have an international development organization that will come into this community. They'll train a bunch of women, let's say on jewelry making. Mm-hmm teach a bunch of these women this is how you make bracelets and necklaces and you know the like and then they'll leave and then you have a bunch of these women that have the skill but they're they're really not able to take that beyond their local market right and so what happens sometimes is that these women with the skill to be able to make these beautiful products she now can't even afford to buy the the equipment to make them so that's a that's a challenge of course um, her reach of market, her target audience is really limited to literally how far she can reach. Like, you know, can I get to the next city to sell them or, you know, whatever. So without the partnerships of like, without global partnership of being able to really push the product beyond my local community, it's really hard. Uh, And like you said, running a startup is on its own, very difficult, let alone starting it at a camp where Mm -hmm. they have this sense of disadvantage to start to begin with right because they they're not at a good position in the market to really leverage their their position um forward um and so this is why with city it was so important for us to you know we have the women at the camp but we needed to be able to reach much further than that it was more than just having a place at the you know um at the camp where women made a bunch of soap right to make sure that there needs to be distribution of some sort. Exactly. We needed to create the partnerships. We needed to have the reach. We needed to, you know, speak to, you know, marketing at, at you know, a global level, not just yeah. locally within our, our community. Are, are the women that, that are there, is it, I know it's a stupid elementary term, but is there like a, a waiting list of women? Like if, if yeah, so, I mean, we, we continues to grow, have, right? I mean, do you Yeah, have, we definitely have, we we definitely have a number of women that uh, will knock on our doors and be like, are you hiring? Because we hear, you know, that you guys have been able to provide sustainable long-term employment to these women. And, you know, we'd like to be part of it and we'd like to, you know, join. Um, And we definitely have, like you said, we do have a wait wait list of of people, Um, but we've also been able through um, a a couple of training grants um, provided by GIZ, uh, we actually brought in uh, a cohort of women at a time that have joined for three months at a time to learn 
the you know the training process, the packaging process, um, understand kind of the the ins and outs of the business, so that at times when we do have a surge, let's say of orders, or we need to fulfill something at a deadline, we're able to you know pick up the phone and go through our list and be like, okay, we need you to come in, you know, to to work these days, for example. And it kind of manages our our ability to scale. Um, because ideally I'd love to hire, you know, a hundred, 200 women at a time on a full-time sure. basis, right. but, you know, realistically, I don't, I wouldn't have the funding for it. And so, but I also don't want to limit myself to not be able to scale when the time comes. Um, and if someone comes to me and says, you know, I want to feel, yeah, you want to be prepared years. for it. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So if I, if I have a company that's like, you know, we need 20,000 of these, I don't want to be like, sorry, I only have two women that I have on board, right? <laughs> right. Like I mean, that puts me also at a weak advantage to leverage opportunities that are thrown at me um, from time to time. And so it's important to have that cohort of women, to have that wait list of women um, on standby that when we are ready to, to grow and expand and take on more clients, that we have those women there ready for work um, to jump on board. When the, I see now that you kind of have several products now. Um, yeah. So what was that sort of transition like going from soap and then thinking about other things? Was it women maybe that came up to you and say, hey, uh, I'm really skilled in this too? Or was it you kind of just looking at the market and say, like, hey, I think these would do really well. Um, let's let's try to make something like this. So when we first started, like you said, with just a single bar of soap, more and more people started coming to us. We started getting a lot of wedding orders. So nice. yeah. brides, that would come and they said, you know, we want to gift something with a conscious feel to it. And so we started, it was very important for us to have these wedding style or very gifty uh, type of products, because we felt like our product wasn't your basic, you know, Dove soap that you find at a pharmacy. No offense to Dove. Um, It's a great company. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, go to your friend's birthday and be like, I bought you a bar of soap, right? Like, (laughs) I, I don't think you would, right? Awkward. I mean, yeah, it's like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, do I smell? <laughs> what do you mean? But City, on the other hand, is such a socially conscious brand and it's such a beautiful brand mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that when you do gift it, you're not going to be like, what do you mean? Like, you're well, not going to tell the story that. when you give it too, right? Exactly. That's it's like, you know, I bought you something that definitely, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, double giving, you know, I'm giving to you and I'm giving back also to the community. Um, So we definitely saw that trend that when we were producing the product, it was more, like I said, more than a bar of soap. And it was leaning a lot towards the gifting industry that a lot of people wanted to gift it. So we started looking at, okay, what are there uh, products can we produce that can be giftable? And then we also wanted to make sure that the products we introduced remained authentic to what Siti means. And I didn't mention this before, but Siti in Arabic actually means my grandma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for us, you know, we wanted something that would be grandma approved, you know, um, so, <laughs> Very um, important. Very important. ingredients that my grandmother would understand, you know, products that, you know, if I was to look at my grandma's uh, cupboard, it would probably, you know, be be there. Um, so we slowly kind of were working with the women to say, OK, what can we what, what can we do with you to uh, to introduce new products? That would be a great seal to have on the packages. Grandma approved. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, that's a good idea. I love it. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, shoot! I had I had a follow up, and then I then I lost it when I 
had to make a, a joke, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so when we're talking about grandmas, is is the uh, is there a certain like age that women need to be to start training and things like that, um, or is it just if they go through? I, I guess I'm trying to connect. I don't know if the dots connect through the NGO that you started still, and then does that sort of feed into um, CT in any way? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so hopes is definitely so city was was kind of like a beneficiary. Um, it started almost as a project and it ended up on its own as as a company as a social mm-hmm. enterprise. Um, so we definitely do have some of our alumni that ended up joining us full time and part time at the Women's Center. And the, the nice thing with the Women's Center is it is it encompasses multiple different elements. So City is a big part of the Women's Center. And we also have um, another HOPES beneficiary program called Benat Connect, where we where we train and um, and just help support women in computer skills and language uh, development. Um, so we have literally all ages. So we'll have mm. uh, girls that will volunteer with us at the center um, that are still in university. We have graduates that have joined City as soap makers and art artisan soap makers. And we also have, you know, grandmas as part of the artisan soap makers. So, you know, we have a city herself in, in our team. That's great. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll have, you know, the, the mother, the grandma, the sister, all kind of part of the, the the women behind making making the soap. So it's not really age restricting. It's really about their ability to produce the product um, at a very, you know, at, at the process that, that we've, that we have yeah so i'll end on on this is the vision for you know maybe the next five years or so i know that's hard to, to kind of do right but it you it seems like you're very very you have a re- very good vision on on what you want things to be going from mm-hmm. start to now so what is that what does the vision look like a little bit um, later on as as the brand matures more as you know the supply chain gets even better and and you know, more customers buy things. What is the next five years you hope what it looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's expanding our center, mm-hmm. um, being able, there's actually a property we're looking at to, to purchase because we were growing to our, you know, the center we're currently in is getting a little tight for us. Sure. Um, and so in order for us to grow as a company, we also need you know, the space to be able to grow. So, um, you know, in the next five years, we want to be able to move to a new space. I want to be able to, you know, hire double, triple the, the number of women that we have mm-hmm. working for us full time, you know, on a sustainable income. And to start kind of really reaching our, our target of, you know, creating partnerships and, and you know, uh, doubling and tripling um, and quadrupling our current sales. Um, <laughs> and to do that, just to be able to, you know, fund that money back into the camp and kind of really leverage opportunities to to grow on that level. You know, we started out the corporate gifting industry is a multi-billion dollar yeah. industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can just enter even a small margin and be able to really leverage that to help, you know, feed back into the refugee economy, we can definitely see a change. And, um, you know, for me, inspiring other companies to be able to to follow on those steps would be would be huge. And so, yeah, in the next five years, you know, it's for for us, it's all about you know growth and development and and investing back into the community. And if we're able to to do more with that, then you know, I think for us, it would mean that we've we've been able to do our job. Yeah, it's a big win. Well, 
thank you so much, Nora. It's uh, I'm I'm so glad we got to do this. I know we've we've <laughs> played phone tag a little bit for a while, but I'm I'm, yes. I'm so happy we did this because I've been been following City for for years now, and it's it's great to see the growth. It's great to see uh, the brand evolving and and the impact that it's making and literally changing women's lives. It's such a it's such an amazing thing, you know. I mean, it's so it's so uh, I don't know. It just uh, it, it it empowers powers us as human beings, right? To where we can we can make a difference uh, by simply buying normal things we normally buy, right? It's yeah. it's all it's awesome. So I yeah. uh, appreciate everything you and Jacqueline are doing and building, and uh, best of luck going forward. Thank you so much, Grant. It was such a pleasure. You know, we at City love cause artists, and you guys have just been so supportive from you know a few years back. I remember. And, you know, we, we hope to continue to to connect and, and show you guys our growth. And, you know, thank you for listening to our story. And, and like you said, you know, people listening have that ability to create that change. Like your dollar has that impact. You know, you're able to make an impact, you know, halfway across the world just by, you know, where you're buying and how you're eating and how you're dressing. And, you know, yeah. and I love that you guys are able to, to spread that message forward. So thank you.